Flash Forward. I'm Rose, and I'm your host. Flash Forward is a podcast about the future. Every episode, we take on a different possible or not-so-possible future scenario. We start with a trip to the future, and then we teleport back to now to talk with experts about how that future might really go down. Got it? Great. Let's start today in the year 2113. Hello and welcome to The New Q, a show all about barbecue in this brave new meatless world. Today I'm going to show you the best way to make kebabs out of syntha beef. Now when I was growing up, every weekend was barbecue weekend. We'd fire up the grill and throw on some juicy steaks, burgers, hot dogs. With my family, it was all about the meat. So when meat was banned a few years ago, we were really at a loss for what to do. Well worry no more my friends, I'm here for you. I'm going to teach you how to make a delicious meal with a lot of those same flavors that you might be missing. First, we're going to make a twist on the BLT sandwich, but instead of bacon, we'll use seitan. Then I'll show you how to grill up lentil burgers that will fool even your most carnivorous uncle. And to round out the whole thing, a cheeseless cheesecake to die for. Stick around and let me help you bring back that cookout weekend feeling, no meat required. Craving that juicy steak flavor? Can't quite get your veggie burgers to satisfy your guests? No need to suffer through endless veggie plates and dry fake meat any longer. Add Synthe Beef to your cart and reclaim your favorite recipes. Synthe Beef is made from all natural lab-grown cow cells. Our scientists have spent years perfecting the flavor and texture of our products. And in a blind taste test, even the pickiest meat eaters couldn't tell the difference. No yeast fillers, no artificial colors, just pure, juicy, ethical beef. Send the beef, it's what's for dinner. But the summer is gone. Hello, and welcome to the United States Department of Agriculture Meat Product Reporting Hotline. As of January 1st, 2099, all meat and dairy products are not permitted for consumption or distribution. Remember, all tips are completely anonymous. If you have information about a business selling meat products, press 1. If you have information about an individual selling meat products, press 2. If you have information about an individual hunting animals, press 3. If you have information about an individual importing or exporting meat products, press 4. For all other inquiries or to get more information about the new regulations on meat and dairy products, press 5. Not sure what to make for dinner? Stumped now that you can't grill up those burgers and steaks? Come on down to Millaway's, Colorado's finest vegan restaurant. Our chefs are constantly preparing incredible meals to delight and surprise your taste buds. And now, Millaways is offering free cooking classes when you eat dinner here twice. Learn how to replicate our signature dishes at home and more from our award-winning chefs. Millaways, clean your conscience and your plate.
in this future, meat is banned. No burgers, no hot dogs, no cattle, no pigs, no chickens, no lamb, nothing like that. This is a future that a lot of you have asked for, so here we go. So let's start with arguments in favor here, because there are lots of people who would like to see this happen. And we'll start with someone named Marta Zaraska. She's a journalist, and she's the author of a book called Meat Hooked, the history and science of our two-and-a-half-million-year obsession with meat. Marta and her daughter are both pescatarians, so they eat fish but not other meat, which can be a bit of an issue in their small town in France. I think many think I'm crazy. (laughs) I mean, you know, if you were in big cities, that's a different story. Of course, you know, Paris is a different story. But uh, I just moved from one small village to another small village. And my daughter is vegetarian as well. Uh, She's only four, so it's kind of (laughs) our vegetarian by force, by parental choice, I guess. But but now she's changing school to another new village school. And I'm trying to convince uh, uh, the, the, uh, the school officials, basically, to provide her vegetarian meals and she would be the first in the history of the village. In our previous village, she was also the first in the history of the village that she was eating vegetarian food in school cafeteria. And I'm, I'm up to this fight again, trying to convince, uh, you know, that vegetarian diet is perfectly fine for children and uh, that she should be getting it. So, but it's, it's obviously at a very, very difficult level. Now, if you read the YouTube comments on videos about veganism which I did, but I do not recommend, there appears to be a lot of controversy about whether humans are naturally carnivores, omnivores, or frugivores slash vegetarians. Some people argue that eating meat is totally unnatural and that humans were made to eat plants and fruits. Others argue the opposite, that humans are made to survive on meat. Now, unlike some of the questions that we'll get to in a minute, this one is easy to answer. Humans are omnivores. Like chimpanzees, we are evolved to eat all sorts of foods. Meat, vegetables, fruits, nuts, etc., etc., etc. So for, for our ancestors, let's say two and a half million years ago, when they started eating meat, or two million, two million years ago, or one and a half million years ago, whatever, in a long, long time evolutionary past, uh, meat was a very good source of nutrients and this is because they didn't have much else to eat uh, the, the choice on African savannas back then you know they, they were eating just few types of fruits uh, leaves for example grasses things like that so so not very nutritious um, sources of foods the way you know, we have nowadays. Nowadays, we have an unbelievable plentitude of different uh, nutritious sources. And if our ancestors back then had other foods, you know, there is it's very likely that they would have gone for it and eaten something else. But because they didn't have the choice. Meat was a good food for them. It was very caloric, for example, uh, which obviously was a great idea. So our ancestors definitely ate meat because meat is full of calories and stuff that our bodies can do important things with. And because for them, finding enough calories at all was a regular issue. Okay, so our ancestors ate meat, humans can eat meat, but humans don't have to eat meat. We don't actually need meat to survive. And this thing that you often hear about how people have to eat meat because they need protein and they'll die without it, that's not really true. I mean, humans do need protein, but they don't actually need it in the form of meat. And most people are already getting way more protein than they actually need. You know, the the most important thing to realize about protein is that in developed countries, we eat more protein than needed, about twice as much as actually our bodies need. So we are nowhere close to be to, 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 to needing to be worried about protein. It's actually extremely difficult not to have enough protein if you are eating enough calories. So 
basically people who have not enough protein, they are basically starving. They don't have enough food in general because almost everything has protein in it. So in Western world, only people, for example, who have anorexia or who are, um, who, who are very sick, um, for example, with HIV, these people can have problems with protein, but, be, but that's because of general nutritional problems, but not your average American or European. So if we did wind up in a future where meat was banned, people would be nutritionally just fine. They would have to learn how to make new things and eat new things, but a meatless diet is totally fine and healthy. This future is not one in which we all die of starvation or malnutrition. Now that we've gotten that out of the way, let's talk about the two main arguments in favor of this future ethics and sustainability. Now, the sustainability argument is a little bit more clear cut, so let's start there. Industrial meat production is not great for the planet. Okay, so let's talk about some numbers here. And I will preface this by saying that finding statistics from unbiased sources on this topic is really hard. So I tried to pick sources that were either peer-reviewed or unconnected with either animal rights groups or animal agriculture groups, but it's pretty hard to find data from unaffiliated people. So if you have any questions about any of these stats, you can go to flashforwardpod.com and I'll put a list of citations there. Okay, disclaimer out of the way. In 2014, the entire world produced 315.3 million tons of meat. That's cows, pigs, chicken, and sheep. And those animals consumed 1.3 billion tons of grain. Livestock production uses about a third of the world's fresh water every year and contributes between 14 and 18 percent of global greenhouse gas emissions, depending on whose numbers you trust. Now, 14 to 18 percent might not seem like that much, but it actually is. That's about the same amount of greenhouse gas emissions that comes from the transportation sector every year. And a recent study in Science suggested that increases in livestock farming go hand-in-hand with decreases in biodiversity. Livestock, both the actual animals and the plants that we grow to feed them, also take up a huge amount of land. According to the UN, 26% of the land on this planet is used for livestock in some way. Now, if we eliminated meat, we wouldn't just suddenly recoup all of that land and suddenly stop emitting any greenhouse gases. We would obviously have to replace meat with something else, like soy or vegetables for us to eat, which also, of course, takes land and water to make. But they take less land and less water and less of almost everything. You know, we we do have to eat. So unless you just stop eating and starve yourself, there will be some, you know, environmental impacts of your diet because everything has environmental impact, but we do need to eat. So eliminating meat consumption and production would definitely reduce greenhouse gas emissions and water and land use. And that land could, if managed properly, return to forests or grasslands or shrubby ecosystems or whatever they were before. But that's a big if. A lot of the land used to graze animals and grow food is actually really dry and might not be able to recover. And managing the regrowth of millions of acres of land is not easy. But if we could return all of that land to some kind of non-industrial state, that would be a good thing, both for our climate and for biodiversity. So that's the sustainability argument, and it's a pretty compelling one. The other argument is the ethical one, and this one is a little bit less empirical. Some people who are vegans and vegetarians argue that it is immoral to inflict suffering on other sentient beings. Last week, I asked for listeners to tell me what they thought about being forced to give up meat. And we'll get to the rest of the answers you sent in soon, but here is what one listener, Mike, said. Hey, Rose. Uh, So I think that if meat were illegal, that wouldn't bother me at all because I'm a vegetarian. But I think a lot of people think that, like, when you're a vegetarian, your choice not to eat meat is just a choice the way, like, someone's choice not to eat carrots is just a choice. It's just like a dietary preference. But a lot of people I know who are vegetarians, myself included, 
think that the reason not to eat meat is that there's something wrong with it in the way there's something wrong with like torturing a dog. Uh, so it's kind of strange for me that it's legal to like produce meat in a way that, you know, causes a lot of animal suffering, but illegal to like torture a dog or cat for fun. Uh, that seems weird. So yeah, that's what I think of it. All right. See ya. Well, it is funny because my wife uh, wrote me a note while I was talking, um, veganism, not a diet, um, to remind me to, to keep saying that because um, what you're talking about, the people that um, eat vegan for sustainability reasons, they, they, they eat a vegan diet, whereas me personally, I'm different because I live a vegan lifestyle. Li- living as a vegan is an ethical choice, and uh, it's an all-encompassing philosophy of animal rights. Um, and animal liberation. And so for those of us who, you know, we believe in one struggle, one fight that, um, you know, justice is not something that's, um, you know, just for humans. That's David Agronoff, and he's a vegan and an activist and the author of a book called The Vegan Revolution with Zombies. Well, The Vegan Revolution with Zombies looks at um, a, a potential future where uh, a product is created, a drug is created, that um, is used to create what the industry calls stress-free meat. And the idea was that this um, additive to the meat, dairy, and eggs would, would basically numb the animal's sense of pain and suffering. And, that, and so the idea was is that consumers could then eat uh, meat without feeling any guilt. Um, and so the, the end, so what basically happens in the novel is that, um, as a result, uh, once this enters the food supply, basically everyone in the world who isn't vegan becomes a zombie. David's been a vegan for over 20 years, but he says that his decision definitely confused people at first. I'm one of those people that, uh, my diet before I was vegan was pretty terrible. Um, I basically lived off tombstone pizzas and shells or or, um, Velveeta shells and cheese and French fries. And so uh, when I first decided to become vegetarian, my father said to me that I was nuts. And when I told him it was perfectly healthy, said, yeah, I know that. But for you to be vegetarian is is crazy. But for him, he just can't defend any animal products of any kind. You know, we can end this this horrendous slavery of animals that turn them into bio machines, basically just producing protein, you know, that they live their lives in misery and suffering just to create protein in the most inefficient way possible. So let's envision a future where, where, um, we don't have to do that. So David and Marta are on team no more meat and they have made some compelling arguments. But if you are a meat eater listening to this, I think I probably know what you're thinking. And that is, no, I will not be giving up my meat. Thank you very much. And in fact, I asked for listeners to send me their thoughts on giving up meat. And here is what you said. Hi, Rose. This is Anne. Um, I guess my first question would be to ask whoever tried to mandate me to not eat meat. Um, My first question would be what the reason was. And if it was a good reason... You know, I might consider it. But if they had no reason, I would, um, if it was just 
some rule. I would uh, I would just sneak and do it anyway. I don't think I would lead a big protest. I don't think I would, um, you know, organize anything. Um, but I just would just keep doing it. I would figure that they couldn't um, they couldn't catch me. I would not. I would not stop it if it was mandated by the government. I don't believe the government has the right to tell us what to eat and what not to eat. Um, otherwise, um, what it would take me personally of my own free will to stop eating meat would be a, a serious medical emergency or serious medical problem. Hi, Rose. This is Sarah Watson. I'm calling from Cambridge, Massachusetts. My my issue if we stopped eating meat would be lack of variety and lack of kind of umami flavors. So, so much of the, even the quality of a chicken stock or, um, you know, a mapudofu dish in China is the, like, extra oomph that the, like, pork gives to the, to the tofu. Um, and so I'm, I'm all about eating small amounts of meat and being careful about when I eat meat, but it has its time and its place, especially when it comes to flavor. I'm Chinese-Canadian. Uh, my cultural background is Chinese, and a big part of our heritage revolves around food, just like an Italian family. Or it's just like, you know, we, we revolve our life around food. I just got married, and the typical wedding banquet has 12 courses, and at least eight of them are fully meat dishes. So if someone mandated me to eat meat, I would just feel like it was a bit of a cultural affrontage that you're asking me to um, like remove myself from my cultural heritage, and it means it, it means I'd have to step away from like my grandfather and my grandmother, and, and just kind of have a very different relationship with my family, which. I'm, I'm going to do. So I get really angry with people who get really um, indignant about living a meat-free society. You, my dear listeners, are far more measured and polite than many. I recently read the comments on some YouTube videos, like I mentioned before, and let me tell you, they are intense. On both sides, actually. Everybody is calling everybody else evil and stupid and all of these names that I will not say on this podcast. Now, A lot of the vegetarians and vegans that I know and that I've talked to are, I guess, perplexed about why people get so upset and so angry when you try to take meat away from them, which is relevant to today's episode because if you actually did try to ban meat to force everybody in the United States or even in the world to give up meat, there would probably be a pretty strong reaction. Oh, I think there'd be anarchy, first of all. (laughs) I do. I think you would have anarchy because you'd have a lot of disgruntled people. You'd have a lot of dissatisfied people. And while over time they might get used to it, then again they might not. And the trauma that they may experience between the time that they did without and the time that they got adjusted to it, you know, you have to ask, are you, you know, are you are you hoping that people will thrive or are you just really trying to make people's lives miserable? 
This is Psyche Williams-Forson, and she's a professor of American studies at the University of Maryland and the author of a book called Building Houses Out of Chicken Legs, Black Women, Food, and Power. And I called her because her next project is about food shaming and food policing, particularly in communities of color. And because she understands why people react so strongly when you try to take away their food. A long time ago, my mom said, you know, if we don't have, if I don't have chicken on Sunday, I don't feel like my day is complete. This is what she grew up with. It's what she prepared for us. It's the thing that grounds you to home. And in her work, she's really studied the ways that food is central to who we are as people, our identities. Taking all that away, taking away the foods that we know how to make and to eat and that are meaningful to us, is not easy. When we have these conversations, we should not be so sanguine to believe that they are simple. Because you're talking about people, you're talking about people's lives, the way in which people move through this world, you know, the ebb and flows of their lives, the things that matter to them in terms of time, in terms of um, money, in terms of value, in terms of taste, heritage, culture, memory. There's so many things that get tied into the things that we interact with every day. Food is one of those things. And so I tell people all the time, if you think it's easy, walk into your house and find all your furniture gone. You will feel violated, you'll feel irritated, you'll feel helpless, you'll feel frustrated, you'll be looking for some sort of vindication, all of that. Well, it's the same thing when you tell a person wholesale that you need to get rid of X in your diet. Just wipe it out. Really? That's not a very easy thing to do. Now, this applies to all kinds of foods, not just meat. Certain foods and dishes are really important to people's culture and identity. But in a lot of places, those foods involve meat. In fact, in 2013, President Obama hosted a dinner for 12 Republican senators at this fancy restaurant. And somebody at that dinner ordered a vegetarian meal. But we actually don't know who because nobody would say. It was kept a complete secret because in many Republican states, being a vegetarian is just not something you do. It's not part of the culture. Why is it so important to take away some of the things, ingredients, um, taste, um, um, actual um, foodstuffs that help people identify with themselves, with their culture, with other aspects of their lives. I'll just give you this very brief um, example. I gave a talk out in the Midwest um, along similar lines, and the very next day I had three different women um, had, had shared with their um, advisors, totally random, but I, it, the information came back to me, that they had stopped eating a particular dish that was very germane to their culture, because when they went to this Midwestern school, they were told people out there, you, you just didn't eat these particular foods and ingredients. And they said they never felt as they felt so disconnected from themselves, right? Because they were trying to conform to what someone else had told them that they needed to do in order to survive in that uh, social space. Can you imagine living parts of your life um, totally disconnected from yourself, while everyone else around you seems to feel perfectly at home and especially perfectly at home telling you what you should be doing. So for Psyche, it makes total sense that when you tell people, hey, I'm going to take away your food, they react strongly. Now, this doesn't invalidate the argument that vegans and vegetarians make in favor of eliminating meat. 
But it does help us predict what might happen if some kind of governing body came down and slapped a full ban on meat. This doesn't mean it wouldn't be a good future, but it would be a hard future for us to get to. When we come back, we are going to talk more about that future, what might happen if we did this, and whether or not lab-grown meat could be the way to get there. But first, a quick break. Okay, so this week we're talking about a world without meat, where meat is banned. And if you're not a vegetarian, your question might be, well, what am I going to eat? Marta and David have the same answer. Plants, mostly, and fruits and other things. But let's say that you're a die-hard meat eater, and that is just not good enough. There might still be something for you. Lab-grown meat. Meat made in laboratories. Now, the idea of meat grown in a lab is not new. Tons of science fiction has been made that involves some kind of meat replicator or growing system. Winston Churchill actually wrote in an essay in 1931 that in 50 years, quote, we shall escape the absurdity of growing a whole chicken in order to eat the breast or wing by growing these parts separately under a suitable medium. It's taken a bit more than 50 years, but this kind of thing is now really on the horizon. And here is someone who does it. I work on cellular agriculture. So cellular agriculture is the production of animal products from cell cultures rather than directly from animals. This is Abby Aspen Glencross. Now, as you can hear, Abby's tape is really hard to understand. So I'm just going to kind of summarize what she told me. um, And you'll just have to trust me that this is what she said. Basically, what Abby does is try to grow meat in a lab using cell cultures. And Abby specifically is working on steak rather than ground beef or meat products that have less structure. And it turns out that steak, as opposed to ground beef, is a lot harder. So in 2013, researchers unveiled the first lab-grown burger for a live taste test. There were some, I guess, wrinkles, though. They did succeed in making the burger, but it cost $330,000 to produce just one. And apparently, it didn't taste great. It was too lean. The scientists hadn't cultured any fat tissues to go into the burger, so it was just pure muscle, which no actual burger is ever made from. And right now, the challenge is not just how to make it taste like meat, but actually how to make it feel like meat, especially when it comes to things like steak. So right now, it's really hard to grow anything thicker than a half of a millimeter in the lab, which obviously is not thick enough to be called a steak. And the reason it's so hard is because in the body, there's all this complicated and super tiny biological machinery that does stuff like deliver oxygen and nutrients and carry away waste from the muscle as it works, which is what you're eating, right? You're eating muscle that has been worked on an animal. Now, bodies, biological bodies, are really good at this, but it turns out that it's really hard to replicate that in the lab. So far, once you get thicker than about a half a millimeter, the structures that humans can build in the lab don't really do a great job of getting oxygen and other things to and from the center of the meat. So what Abby does is work in a lab trying to figure out how to do that. And she's not the only one. This might be kind of gross, I guess, but the problems that Abby is facing in the lab are actually the same problems that people who try to grow skin and organs for injured humans are trying to figure out. So labs that are working on growing human tissue for organ transplants or skin for burn victims are pretty much doing the same thing that Abby is. Just the end use of the thing is different. One you give to a human to use in their body and maybe save their life, and the other one you eat. 
Now, there is still a lot that needs to be done with lab meat for it to be both convincing and scalable. But if your goal is to reduce the environmental impact of meat, then this stuff could be a good investment. According to one study, cultured meat has 78 to 96 percent lower greenhouse gas emissions, 99 percent lower land use, and 82 to 96 percent lower water use than conventional meat. Of course, the lab meat does require energy, and some studies say that growing meat in a lab might actually take more energy than growing beef since the lab equipment and structure is big and energy intensive. But since lab meat hasn't really been scaled up yet, it's hard to say what the actual environmental impacts might be. And there's actually some disagreement from the vegan community about whether lab meat is vegan. Some of this work relies on something called fetal bovine serum, which is extracted from unborn calves, which makes it an animal product and thus not vegan. But other people are trying to work on replacing the cow stem cells with something like algae or bacteria. Either way, David says he wouldn't eat it. For me personally, I would never eat lab-grown meat. Um, And... I wish that people would put energy into finding plant-based foods because I think that's a better thing. However, um, for these people who say they could never uh, not eat meat, um, you know, I think lab-grown meat is obviously a better alternative than to, like, to kill actual living animals. It's a lot of effort when you can go to Whole Foods and buy seitan, (laughs) you know? (laughs) And Abby says that's fine. She is not trying to convert everybody to lab-grown meat. In fact, Abby herself isn't a vegetarian or a vegan, and she was very careful to say that she has no ill will towards farmers. I would say that our future is probably one that involves lab meat, whether vegans like it or not. Now, when I was writing the script for this episode, I just sort of felt like something was missing. I talked to vegetarians and vegans, I talked to food studies people, I talked to lab meat people— But I hadn't actually talked to anybody who worked on a farm. You know, like the place where meat and dairy actually comes from. So I called up someone that I know who grew up on a farm and who actually still lives on her farm, even though she's retired and doesn't have animals anymore. Hello. Hi, Grandma. It's Rose. Oh, hi, Rose. How are you, honey? I'm good. How are you? Oh, good. Well, I'm I'm good. We just had a... Well, it's still going on, but it's going the other way. We just had a fire in the area, so Grandpa and I packed up, uh, I did, it was 3 o'clock in the morning on Saturday, because I kept watching it, now that, yeah, it's getting too close, and uh, went stayed in a Fairfield Inn for a couple of days. So this is my grandma. Her name is Doris, and she grew up on a dairy farm, and then she kept sheep for wool and meat when I was a kid. And I just wondered what she thought about the idea of lab-grown meat. You know how I do this podcast? I was telling you last time I was there, I do this, like, podcast about the future. Yeah, uh-huh. um, but yeah, I, I ha- I'm doing an episode about farming, the future of farming, and I actually was wondering if I could ask you a couple of questions. And she had actually never heard of it before. Have you ever heard about, like, people that grow meat in laboratories, like, that are it's like lab grown meat have you seen that like on the news or anything no i haven't heard that term yeah so i guess so they're growing it in a laboratory is it meat well it depends on who you ask (laughs) i think i had one yesterday at denny's in my patty melt because it was really (laughs) strange (laughs) and tasted terrible (laughs) so I don't know. Uh, we didn't say anything. The waitress <laughs> was nice. We didn't create a scene. But it was like, what is this? <laughs> but it 
actually turns out that my grandma had a lot of good questions about this future. The first one being, what happens to all of the pastures that these animals use? You know, the first thing I would think of, for instance, because we have these wildfires around here, uh, part of the way of keeping the grass down is we've got these cattle ranchers that, you know, move their cattle around and eat up the grass and cut down on the on the fire danger. So I think that would be, uh, but that's, I guess they could, they couldn't use goats either. She's also got some questions about our pets, dogs and cats. What do we feed them? Can your, can your, can you, can they be used in pet food? No. Oh, so you're, you better check with your dog about that one. <laughs> yeah. Um, and what about zoo animals? I mean, do tigers in the zoo have to suddenly eat vegan? Of course, she also noted that a lot of people would be out of jobs. I mean, I mean I'm just looking at the whole ramification yeah. thing uh, and the business. And, and, and so then all uh, the butchers would be out of business. Yeah. There would be no steakhouses. Correct. They would be the lab meat steak, not like real steak. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. I see. I see. I don't know. There'd be a lot of people out of business, but then I guess they'd have to work for the people who made the lab meat. Yeah. I don't know. And that it would be really hard to enforce this kind of thing. Well, no, because then, well, now what about the confirmed hunters? How about the guys that fish? Yeah, no, nope, not allowed. <laughs> they can't even go. <laughs> can they throw them back? <laughs> yeah, sure. I guess they could throw them back. <laughs> most of them, throw, most of you know, most of them throw them back anyway. That's just they just go out and catch fish and throw them back. But I don't know how you could enforce that rule. So a future without meat is probably one that involves shifting labor markets, a decrease in greenhouse gas emissions and water use, an increase in veggies, and a whole lot of angry, sad people. It's also not the future we're headed towards. While some countries are cutting their meat consumption, globally, the demand for meat is increasing. But David hopes that that trend doesn't hold up. Uh, Star Trek is pretty much a vegan future, beyond the fact that um, the Vulcans as a species are definitely vegan. Um, <laughs> um, and, and, it's impl- and, and, and I'm not even kidding. Um, there are several instances where uh, Spock mentions being vegetarian and there was even a, a scene um, in Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, when um, the crew was sitting down to eat a meal with the Klingons. And if you watch very closely, Leonard Nimoy does not pick up his utensils at all because the prop people put meat on his plate in front of him. And he knew that Spock would never eat that food um, uh, because as far back as the 60s, it was mentioned that Spock was vegetarian. Now, but here's the thing. I know I'm totally geeking out on Star Trek here. This is, but this is the correct venue for that, so don't yes. worry about it. <laughs> the future in Star Trek is a vegan future. Think about it. What? How do they eat food on the Enterprise? It's replicators. <laughs> They're not eating actual animals. They're eating replicated foods that are basically pulled out of whatever, atoms, <laughs> you know, but, you know, I'm geeking out on Star Trek for a reason, you know, like they see a future um, where these things, you know, are a part of the past. They're envisioning a future where, the, where um, you know, these factory farms are a thing of the past. And um, I think we need to shoot for that. And my grandma thinks it's all very complicated. Yeah, but it, it, it just stretches out into 
all kinds of stuff. Indeed, Grandma, indeed. Flash Forward is produced by me, Rose Eveleth, and is part of the Boing Boing podcast family. The intro music is by Asura, and the outro music is by Broke for Free. Special thanks this week to Carolyn Cinders, Jess Zimmerman, Kevin Wytosik, and John Olier. The break music is by Black Ant, and the episode art is by Matt Lubchansky. If you want to suggest a future we should take on, send us a note on Twitter, Facebook, Reddit, Tumblr, Instagram, all of that stuff. We're on all the things. Or you can just send us an email at info at flashforwardpod.com. We love hearing your ideas. And if you think you've spotted one of the little references that I've hidden in this episode, email us there too. If you're right, I'll send you something cool. And if you want to support the show, there are a few ways you can do that. We have a Patreon page where you can donate. But if that's not on the cards, you can head to iTunes and leave us a nice review. Or just tell your friends about us. That actually does help. I know I say this every time, but it really actually does. Okay, that's all for this future. Come back next week and we'll travel to a new one. <laughs>